This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Hey guys, and welcome back to Titanic Talkline. This is Alexia, and I have uh, an apology to make. The next few episodes that I do, I don't know exactly what happened, but the sound got very muffled. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe we were having some uh, recording issues on my end. It's uh, the uh, platform that I used to host my interviews didn't tell me I had any issues. And when I tested the microphone outside of that program, it was fine. But when I actually got into recording, it was super muffled. So again, I'm sorry about that. I did the best that I could. My guests are loud and clear, which is amazing. But again, I'm sorry if I'm a little unclear. However, I don't want to take up too much time and just want to get into um, this interview. Quick a uh, quick little thing about housekeeping. I still have some patches for sale. Um, Iron-on or so on, $3 each. Um, free shipping in the U.S. I just punched my fan. And if you are outside the U.S., let me know and we can figure something out. But uh, yeah, again, sorry for the audio quality. This does affect several interviews, including this one and I think the next two. They're all recorded on the same day. I fixed the problem now, which is strange because I don't know what the problem was. But again, sorry about that. I guess that's probably obvious. <laughs> Doesn't really matter to me. No. All right. Hey, hey. Yeah, we'll let it go. It's fine. I think. Okay. Yeah, we're all good. Cool. I don't, I hit record. Just I can edit it out later. But oh, that sorry. Way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that way it does a little countdown. But um. Uh yeah. So I can see you. So I know who you are. So would you please just tell everyone really quickly who you are? I try to let everyone introduce themselves instead of jumping in and doing it for them. Cool, cool. Yeah, um, I'm Julie Bin. I'm the author of Titanic Voyage, which is a time travel Titanic story set in a theme park in um, a fictional alternate history version of this town of Eloy, Arizona, um, in southern Arizona that's between Phoenix and Tucson. Mm-hmm. Why time travel? Time travel fiction, especially to me, seems well, it, like anything that involves historical fiction to me seems like really hard because I write fantasy fiction so I never have to worry about whether or not the dress I'm talking about is period if it if it, it is if I say it is um so I never have to be concerned with that but that seems like such a unique choice so why why was it that you wanted to combine time travel with a theme park and Titanic that's a, that's a lot of really interesting elements that just somehow turn into a fun soup it sure is um it's basically got pretty much a little dash of everything I love in it. And that's Mm -hmm. just how that's what worked for me. The time travel, it's time travels complicated, but it kind of makes it in some ways a little easier because you have this person. um, The point of view character is from basically the near future, but we can call it the present for our purposes. And he goes back in time. So he's going to see things and he's not viewing them the way that a character of the era necessarily would. So it kind of mm-hmm. helps. I can write it from a modern viewpoint versus if you write straight historical, you have to think how someone from 1912 would have thought, which can be very difficult. Um, so that helped me. And time travel, what I really like about it, and it ties into the theme park too, time travel, I think, is a genre about possibility, mm-hmm. which the whole Titanic was about possibility. If you think about all the... Um, especially the immigrants coming over from um, their other countries coming to live a new life in America. So they just, it was full of possibility and it just all went sideways. And um, the theme park in Eloy, Arizona for probably 30 years or more, they've, there's been talk about, Oh yeah, we're going to build this theme park by the I-10 freeway. It's going to have people, um, all these different ones. Um, There's been, when I was in college and went down to Tucson they had them and just for years and years so far it hasn't happened but it was kind of fun to imagine what would have changed if they would have built this theme park there as well Mm -hmm. so again just more about the possibilities what could have been and this is kind of a twisty time travel it's not just he goes back once he keeps going back Mm -hmm. again and again to try to um, save the heroine the heroine is a real titanic survivor she is not she's She's not um, sorry I picked up a, a, another book today from Violet Jessup, and I got those mixed up in my brain. I was, second. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I'm sorry. What I meant to ask was, <laughs> is she inspired by any real survivors, or is she also just sort of someone that you wanted to create in order to tell a specific story? 
so my characters just kind of come to my mind and they tell me more and more about them. And um, right. what I found the most fascinating was eventually, um, like there weren't even very many characters with the last name Jones, if I recall, but um, what really struck me eventually I found this um, snippet of an article from, I, let me see, it was from the, um, from Scribner's magazine from March, 1913, where um, Arthur Rostron from the, Carpathia actually right. talked, he um, wrote about a woman that sounded exactly like her. And she oh. didn't really, um, who gave up her place in a lifeboat in order to save others. Um, and I could read it if you want. It's really great. So, sure. or, okay. So um, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> he said, we heard of many great and noble deeds of self-sacrifice performed by those on the Titanic that night. Tales of heroism and bravery of men and women. Standing out equal to each or any, and superbly noble, was that of a young girl. A boat full of women and ready for lowering was found to be too full, and the order was given for someone to get out, as it was considered unsafe. A young lady, a girl really, got up to leave the boat, then some of the others tried to persuade her to remain. No, she said, you are married and have families. I'm not. It doesn't matter about me. This girl woman, in the highest and noblest sense, got out of the boat and returned to the deck of the ship. Those in the boat were saved. The girl on the deck went down with the ship. From being in a position to be saved, she deliberately returned to the uncertainty and so gave her life willingly so that others might have a better chance of being saved. Okay. So that was the snippet. It's a pretty incredible story to tell of... of, of, of anything in any circumstance of someone looking at that chance to be saved and knowing if I say no to this, I die. It's not even, oh, I'm, I might have another chance. There's more boats. It's th things are getting, things are getting down to the wire. And if I, if I leave this boat, I do not leave the sea. Right. Yeah. And there's, um, there's at least two other, um, two famous real survivors who reportedly gave up their positions, but both of them, if I recall, they were like in their thirties mm -hmm. and um, I don't think either of them had families. Um, he could have been talking about her because obviously he wasn't there. He was captain of the Carpathia, but um, yeah. so he could have been talking about one of them, but just seeing that I'm like, that's my character that I've been imagining for all these years. And there she is in, you know, this period um, explanation. So, so that kind of blew me away. You said that you, um, the, the book is a mixture of things that you love. Yes. And I'm assuming that one of those things is Titanic. Yes, so, of course. <laughs> how did you come to, like, what was your story through to Titanic yourself? Because, I mean, I think if, if anyone's listened to the podcast, I, of course, found my way there through, through the Cameron film. I'm a child. You know, I was I was raised in the 90s. There was kind of almost no other way I was going to hear about it besides being bombarded from the news for a year about a movie that I'd never even considered seeing. Right. Um, I'm, I want to be one of those say, oh yeah, I was totally into Titanic, such a huge fan, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure it was the movie that really <laughs> struck off the interest. Um, but in fairness, I mean, when you're younger, the whole storyline of Jack and Rose, like, oh, it's so sweet. But when you look at it later, you see just the, how amazing all the effects are with the mm -hmm. ship and that you're really going there. And one of the things I love about it is it's so well-researched because I just love historical ships and places in general. Mm -hmm. And um, for a place that only existed for one, not even a full voyage, it's very well-documented and, you know, everyone, you know, every nook and cranny, people have better maps of it probably than they do of even some, basically any ship that, doesn't exist now but ever did probably if i had to guess you know that's, that's a big that's a big statement but of any of any one from the period that's pretty much the the one so if you want to find out about old ships like oh titanic there's right probably thousands of books about it so <laughs> it's true um there's an old there's a youth bookstore near my house and <laughs> not, not near my house okay 30 minutes away that's near to me but um, they have a section of unlike boats and ships and what have you. And um, every time I go there, you can find, even if you just stand in front of the shelf for a couple minutes or a few, or even one minute, you'll find at least one or two Titanic books on just the shelf. If you look a little harder, you'll find more. 
Right. Yeah. And there's, and um, that's something else I was surprised by as I read more, because I had read a couple books before I started writing, mm-hmm. but um, as I wrote and edited, it was probably a process of about eight years to get it down. So as I wow. kept working, yeah. So as I kept working, he kept reading more. So you read, as my dad always said, I read one book about a subject and I knew everything about the subject. And I read a second book and I found out I don't know anything about it because <laughs> there's so many differences in the different stories. Right. And you read, um, and the more different people have different ideas of what, oh, I'm sure this happened. And if you read any of the eyewitness accounts, they often contradict just like any other event because people see different things. So it's just fascinating to me. And that's another reason. And since it is so repeatedly documented, it's another thing why I think it's so full of possibility because you have, we don't, you know, this many years later, probably Maybe some people will find some new stuff, but this is, we pretty much know more or less everything there is to know. And yet we don't because there's so many different ideas of, was it this way? Was it that way? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's obviously big things that we pretty much know unless you're into conspiracy theories, which I am not, but, um, but yeah. I'm not into conspiracy theories, but I, every once in a while I hear one where I'm just like, that was so creative. I have to give you credit. (laughs) My, have you heard my favorite one? And it's about the movie was about Jack Dawson being a time traveler. I have heard this one. Yeah, I haven't thought too one's... much about it, but I think someone also linked him to like his other movies. Yeah, that's not bad either. I just like because he's referencing these places that didn't actually exist in 1912. Yes. So it's like, this is actually not that implausible for a movie. You know, it wasn't in the movie, but it's, it's like that this could be it. That actually I... I would believe it if they came out and said that actually was about time travel too. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. I think I saw a theory floated that Jack is a doctor from hmm. Doctor Who. Oh. So I don't watch that show. So <laughs> that I, I don't could be. Like, I don't know enough about it, but my my contribution to the literary <laughs> conspiracy theories is <laughs> have you read the Pendragon series by DJ McHale? I have not. They're really good, and I like them a lot. And it's not so much time travel, it is world travel, where the I'm getting, this is the simplest way I can boil it down. There's these people called travelers, and their job is to go from world to world during a pivotal point and help bring peace. Mm. And my contribution is what if Jack is a traveler? <laughs> <laughs> and who, just, who happened to unfortunately fail at his mission? That could be, or um, it's all. It makes you wonder what would have happened if the Titanic hadn't sank. Would other people have died? You know, because he wouldn't have. I'm sure at some point they would have fixed the lifeboat situation, but it wouldn't have been so soon. So right. it makes you. And I, I'm not. It takes even more um, intelligence than I have to try to figure mm-hmm. out exactly. You know, the whole domino effect of what all would happen, but. Yeah, I'm not good enough for that. I was trying to think of like, what would happen if they, I wanted to know what Rose's plan was for the rest of the voyage after she left that note in the safe, because they were not at New York yet. Right. They still had a couple of days. And I, my, my question is, was she hoping he just wouldn't open the safe between then and New York? And then he could just like disappear into the crowd? Or were you going to like hide in third class for the rest of the voyage? <laughs> just like, I have so many so many silly little questions where it's like this could be answered but i I don't think they ever will be but well there's fan fiction i'm sure someone sure i'm sure someone's done it before probably but that's where i go to where i'm kind of like what if but my questions are usually more like wait i have questions about what would happen in the immediate future if the titanic hadn't sank in the movie right yeah yeah i don't i don't know I think everyone kind of largely agrees from what I've seen that if Titanic hadn't sank on her maiden voyage and had managed to keep going, um, she probably would have ended up being commandeered like the Olympic for um, right. military service. Yeah. So I don't, but um, it make, would she have sank? What? Who knows? So. Uh, who knows? That's hard to say. Yep. Especially even now when you think back to there's always a, you know, there's people still asking questions like, what do you think the iceberg really looked like? And it's like, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Like, it's not that it's unimportant, but it's kind of like, people are always looking to answer more questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it helps paint a picture. 
Yeah. Well, it's, there's, there's always going to be so much unknown. I mean, there's still, you know, there's, there's supposed to be a good list of passengers, but I read, um, it's called the dream and then the nightmare about the Syrian, they call them Syrian passengers. It's basically mm-hmm. anyone from the area. It was greater Syria at the time. Now it's also Syria, Lebanon, I think part of Turkey and might be a couple others. And there's mm-hmm. one Egyptian passenger she mentions, but, um, the newspapers of the era have all these different people listed, you know, that, First off, the spellings were always completely insane. Like, you know, they didn't know how to spell any of these and people went by different names and all this stuff. But um, on top of that, there's a bunch, which I'm sure happens in every community where it's like, oh, yeah, this person was on the Titanic or I was I don't think she has any of the was going to be on the Titanic. Because I think if you had all the people who were supposedly going to be on the Titanic, that was probably two or three times how many people the Titanic would hold. Just yeah, like I think on. a total of 8,000 people were supposed to have yeah. been on the yeah. Titanic or something. Which, yeah, but um, but yeah, so there's all these different ones. Um, like, you know, oh, yeah, this person was supposedly traveling with his wife and his um, sister-in-law and his sister-in-law's mm-hmm. kids. And, of course, they aren't on the records. Um, and, again, I'm not saying they were passengers necessarily, but mm-hmm. there's just possibilities and questions that are always going to be there, I think. So. Yeah, in the same way that people don't exactly know what was in the cargo hold because, like, how... How can you have accounted for absolutely everything in there? All that those records went down with the ship and the cargo hold is very far underneath the sediment of the ocean floor. So there's, you know, no way to know exactly what was on there, you know, what what all was lost. Yeah, you can speculate because, you know, the, all those insurance claims, et cetera, et cetera, were made. But it's like how much other stuff is down there that we just don't know about? There's no way to know. People even argue about, was the car that was there, was it assembled, was it not? And then I saw one video where they were going down into the hold and they saw, it's like, could that be? Is it the car? It's like, I have no idea. I think they were like, I think (laughs) if I had to guess, I'd guess probably more wishful thinking of, oh yeah, that looks like something, but uh, who knows? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we just don't have records like we do now. We don't have, Ale- they didn't have Alexa following them around, making a list of their belongings. Like, it's right. not, it's not how it is now. Like, I can go on my, I have the Target app on my phone. The, the Target app stalks you. If you pay with your, um, if you use your discount card, it will be able to tell you what you ordered online. It can tell you what you bought in the store. It can tell you what you ordered for pickup and order ahead and all that. It just, it knows everything. Yep. So, you know, there's a no way, like, if, for example, for some reason, everything that I ever ordered from Target went down to the bottom of the ocean, I'd be able to be like, this is everything I purchased. I have a massive record. Here it all is. It that's actually, hard. that's actually good to know if you ever fly, because if they lose your bags, they'll say, we need a receipt of everything that was in your luggage. So we uh-huh. will pay out your claim. So you can go back anything you bought at Target, be like, well, here it is. I bought it in 2019. Give me my money. A friend of mine told me that what I should do is before you go on a trip, you should t- before you zip up your suitcase, you should take a picture of the contents. Yeah, yeah that's that's a good idea. Um, the thing, what I've seen where I work, sometimes you have that kind of thing, and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so they they just don't want to pay. Just just like anything, think of all the Titanic insurance claims. Um, oh man, I don't remember the dollar amount, but there was some very yeah. very very large dollar amount of the claims made, and the payout was much much smaller, which I'm sure includes yeah. the ship herself, but just passengers yeah. generally didn't get what they asked for. No, and I know that there was a lot of. Um controversy about the white star line not helping victims and people who lost everything and it was just like you're right and i I think we're seeing the effects here too where it's sort of like company greed is a powerful motivator so even if for example i'm just going to pretend that i was the white star line secretary in 1912 (laughs) and even if i wanted with all of my heart to hand over money to that grieving widow i don't have it right i'm the receptionist so it's one of those things where it's like, if I don't make the rules, I can't help. And that's, it's really, it really, really, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. And that's, and so much of it, um, if I recall, a lot of the aid come came from aid agencies and stuff. Yeah. Like you'd be, um, a lot of the Syrian passengers were Christians. Not all of them were, of course, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, you get your church. Uh, Christians in their community and stuff. Um, but a lot of them got aided. A lot of the Syrian passengers were aided by the 
I don't know if they called it Jewish, but basically the people from Israel or the Jewish um, communities mm -hmm. in America because they had the same kind of cultural you know similarities so it wasn't quite like it is now necessarily so because nowadays you'd be like why would the jewish groups give the money to the you know syrians so much but back then they had more in common i think than they did with other groups maybe i mean it, it's just fascinating if you read who who gave what to who and just um how it all went down it's so different from now because for example if if a cruise ship went down and you know the survivors were brought here to new york there it would be expected that we would be giving out food and clothes and money if we didn't do that we would be absolute bloody monsters mm -hmm. and it, it, it's true we couldn't accept widows and children and just be like gosh good luck you know mm -hmm. we, we would help that's what you know you're we're supposed to do but you know at the time i think as you as you said there was a lot more there were a lot more barriers in place. There were class barriers. There were race barriers. There were a lot of those things where it's like, I'm pretty sure this is going to sound terrible, but some organizations may not, some people may not have wanted to accept things oh, from yeah. certain other groups. Whereas, you know, today, if some, most people, if someone's handing you a blanket when you're cold, you're going to be, you're going to take it. But at the time there was probably a lot more sentiment. Like when Ruth in the movie was like, will the lifeboats be seated according to class? <laughs> that sentiment was pretty popular. Yeah. Um, and even on the Carpathia, they split them up by class, but the mm -hmm. first class people, and these, think about it, um, they weren't as bad off as the second class where almost no men lived, but the first yeah. class, there were still a lot of widows and they went around and took up a collection for, if I recall, for the passengers and I think also for the um, Carpathia's crew mm -hmm. to, you know, give them. So these people who had just lost, you know, their husbands, a lot of them, they still went out to help people. So there was, there was, there were barriers, absolutely, but a lot of people did try to help as well. And the government didn't help as much i don't because yeah. nowadays you count well the government will come and they'll take care of it and now yeah. back then it was not necessarily like that the one thing that i do find to be in common between sort of all eras is that you can look for people helping each other yes which is always nice because you know yeah maybe the white star line failed the victims and yeah the government definitely failed its victims but you hear these stories of people taking up collections and I think there was a little girl in the Carpathia who, when she found out how many of the kids had lost everything, she gave away every item of clothing that oh. she wasn't wearing and was just like, and, and this is a kid, I don't mean like 11-year-old, right. she was like six. Some little girl. And you hear these stories of little moments where someone just reached out to another person and said, I can't give you money and I can't rebuild your life, but I have half a sandwich I can give you. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the Carpathia passengers and the um, like the men leaving their cabins so that the women could sleep in their beds and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But well, even on the I don't remember who it was, but um, the one woman was on one of the lifeboats in probably just her nightgown or whatever. And one I think it was one of the firemen said, um, you can have my socks. They're clean. I just put them on this morning. <laughs> so the amount of giving was really pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. Those are the stories that I, I mean, obviously I like to hear the stories and bring voices back to the people that we lost, but I really do like the stories of how, again, we have it today too, where it's like, you can't really count on companies or the government to exactly do the right thing by its people, but you always hear little stories about like community comes together to help family vandalize by whatever, or, you know, little, you hear stories about tiny communities coming to do things for each other and those are the stories that i really like and that connectivity that we look for in the past i think that you really nail it in your book because you you get to, you get a, a very lucky person who not only is able to think gosh i'd love to talk to a titanic victim but somehow is like oh i really get to <laughs> it's a very different experience that most of us are never going to have but it's that sort of desire to connect to the past for those human reasons Right. Is that what? Sorry, I heard a noise and I thought it was. Oh, I tapped my fingers together. <laughs> oh, noise. and also my dog moved behind me. So I was like, what's <laughs> happening? There's a bunch of noise that I wasn't anticipating. But um, you said it took you like eight years to write this book. Uh, off and on, I started as a National Novel Writing Month project. Um, oh yeah. I've so I wrote the whole one. thing as quickly as I could, and um. 
I'm, I call myself a discovery writer. Um, you might hear it called a gardener or the most common term is a pantser. So the person who just kind of writes what comes to mind and then tries to make sense out of it later. Mm-hmm. That for me does not work very well with National Novel Writing Month because basically I have a draft. I came away with a draft that mm-hmm. was probably uneditable. Like it, yeah. it was just whack, just totally left, right, whatever. So I think I don't remember if it was one year or two years later. And when I wrote it, part of it was, um, I think it was God kind of nudging me to start thinking about, yeah, you're going to lose your parents at some point. This is the kind of thing you're getting to that age you need to think about. And then I'm pretty sure before I wrote that second draft, which I also did as a kind of cheating National Novel Writing Month one, I think it was two years later, but it might have been one, my dad died. So then I had all this um, real information to funnel in to kind of, um, I'm not a very emotional person in general, so I don't really have necessarily a lot of grief, but I was able Mm to kind of feel through my characters when they have that kind of thing happen. So it really, um, that really helped. And a lot of my dad is in it. I don't think I would have been able to publish it if it were, if he were still alive, because, you know, he get his little stories and stuff. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if I would have done it. Um, The character is not really my dad at all, but I put snippets of him here and there. So like I said, I don't know that I would have published if he were still alive, but now that he's gone, there's kind of some tributes to him in there. So, and then I just, I'm the kind of person that just edits and wants to make it better. I'm still, I'm working on a second book right now and I'm like, oh, I should have done X in book one, which I probably won't make any big changes. I might um, tweak the beginning just to get readers to be a little more, um, Cause it's an interesting book. It's a different style that you don't see very often. So I might try to make it a little softer at the very beginning to get people reading. It seems like once they get started, they're really into it, but um, it takes the a little while book, to get Are you on. talking about the first book? I'm sorry. Are you talking about the second book? Or are you talking about making changes? Oh, I'm sorry. Book? I'm sorry. Um, my first book, I'm still thinking like, Oh, I would love to change whatever. Like I've published it. It's out there. So if I, any I changes, have a copy, it's, it's on yeah. my bed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's out there. People have read it. So it's I'm not the kind of person that's going to do the um, George Lucas Star Wars thing. And oh, yeah, I'm going to change everything about it. But since I'm all about possibilities, it it's hard not to some. And that's part of why it was good to put it out, even though sometimes they say you should not put out a series unless you have it all um, done. And in fairness, I think book one totally stands alone. If that's all that ever comes out, I think it's fine. But I am thinking about and slowly working on a second follow-up book. So be a follow-up. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's yeah. Well, again, my first draft or so, I think it's not as haphazard as my second, as my first draft of the first book. So my goal is like, if I can get it done in five years, I'd be so excited. That's three years fewer than the last one. So I'm I'm not, not fast. I'm just impressed with the fact that you finished a singular book. I have wanted to write a book and have had an idea for a book for how old am I now? Twenty years or so. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and I just keep building and refreshing it in my brain. I think I'm an overthinker because you said you're more. Yeah. I'm an overthinker. I'm like, well, I'm gonna get it perfect in my brain, and when it's perfect in my brain, and when it sits down on my computer, I'm gonna get it out. But the problem <laughs> is, it's never perfect in your brain. Yeah. That is a lie, and I keep lying to myself. <laughs> And even when it is perfect in your brain, you get it out and then you read it a month later, you're like, what was that? Why did yes. I do that? So I've had, I'm sure you, maybe you've had this where I go to, where I'll write something, go to bed thinking like that, that was an emotional conversation. I think, <laughs> I think people are really going to get it. And then you read it the next day and it sounds like two six-year-olds yelling at each other. And you're like, good <laughs> God. I will tell you for my, and again, my second draft was, of course, much stronger than my first draft for Mm -hmm. Titanic Voyage. But the second draft, I was all excited. And then I went back and sometimes you're more into it. Sometimes you're not. But I went back and reread it. I'm like, yeah, that scene two thirds through the book. It's so good. I'm so excited. Like after reading, it's like the stuff before it. Yeah. So um, editing is I have a hard time getting that first draft out. I could edit for years and years as evidenced by how long it took to come out with the book. So getting the first draft out, even if you end up changing so much of it was really Uh huge for me. So 
Yeah, and I find that for myself even too, even if I just sit down and, and write for a little bit or one page even, it can help kickstart other ideas. So even if you go back and delete that one page because you realize the next day that it was the, you know, worst thing that has graced the English language, um, <laughs> it may have helped you spark other ideas. Like, right. I've been I had been trying to figure out a plot hole in my, it's not even a plot hole, it was just something that even in a real person, it's not weak. You would just be like, that's an unusual thing. But then I let it mull over my brain long enough. Of course, I can't think of what it is. Otherwise, I would just tell you. But eventually, I was able to figure it out just by thinking about it and ruminating on it and eventually realizing where I was missing something. Exactly. And I think my problem is that I have those moments and what comes out of them is so good that I think I should do that for everything. I'm like, no, just wait till you have that epiphanous moment. It's not how it works. That's what editing's for, because you'll, yep. you know, just be, I go on a walk, and I'm like, that's what should be in there, so that really, um, yeah, it's it's hard for me, too, because right now, when you're writing, and it's, you're on a part that's kind of hard, they say, for someone like me, you should probably skip ahead and do another scene, I'm like, but, but, order, order, so it's Same. hard for me. To... Everyone, t that's what everyone, uh, all the advice that I see for people, like, like me is it's like because my, the world and the people I've built are so rich and robust I, I want to get there I want to yeah. get to that point I want to get to the fun action scene where everything just goes boom and but unfortunately I have no idea how long this book is going to be but that part is that's not like chapter one of my book and in the same way that I'm like but I can't I can't write chapter seven if chapters one through <laughs> six aren't there that's illegal but it, it probably is good advice. Like someone said, just yeah. write the scenes you're excited about and then go back and fill in, you know, the bare minimum of how to get between those scenes. And that's, mm -hmm. that's probably sound advice. The other issue is I have a critique group, so you have to submit. I mean, I guess I could submit them out of order, but that's probably doesn't seem like a great idea. So I have to get enough ahead at least to have something ready for them. Yeah, I think that's part of my problem as well and i don't know i'm sure this is a thing with historical fiction but especially with like fantasy or sci-fi or anything that doesn't take place in today's world you have to establish the world i can't just drop people into the middle of genesis and expect that if i say the following sentence oh the animan camp is over there that anyone is going to know what that means and that would be really unfair to my readers to just expect them to be able to hop in like that and i think that's where i i get a little yeah, I get caught up in that because I'm like, well, if there's no context, and then I allow myself to procrastinate one more day. And it's tricky because you also have to trust the readers because the readers are like, you told me about them five times. I don't really <laughs> need to hear about it again. So um, that's why um, I find you need to have at least a couple other people look at it because mm -hmm. you can't... Um, you can't know, you know what's in your head, you know your whole world forwards and backwards. Right. When I, years and years ago, when I was writing a fantasy, um, some very kind critiquers told me, I'm sure you have this all in your head, but you need to get it across to us. And I'm like, I do not have it in my head, but that was not a kind <laughs> thing to say. So, um, yeah. Um, it's, writing is hard because you're right. Like, I know my characters inside out. If you, if someone was like, picked one of my characters and asked me, what is their favorite food? I know that. I have the answer. But yeah, again, when you ask someone to read something, or if you only send them, say, the first 30 chapters of your book, where it's like you haven't quite established everything yet, you end up leaving them with a lot of questions because they're like, I haven't gotten it. What? what? <laughs> Who are these people? Right. And for me, different readers want different things too because yeah. I like the questions I like the kind of open-ended and the trying to puzzle it out myself but then mm -hmm. other people are like what's going on I'm very confused so that's always a challenge to figure out um, where the best place is to try to meet as many people as you can where they want to be because you can't you're not going to be able to reach everyone whatever yeah. you do but you want to try to get to where both sides are kind of happy probably it does, that's a hard balance I imagine to find between like I, I've done other kinds of collaborative projects with people too before, and it's always hard to, it's not always hard to find a middle ground, but it's sort of like, well, I'm picturing it exactly like this. And if you change this detail, then the picture in my brain is different. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's different. 
I do more watching movies and TV than reading. This is like I've done a little more reading lately, but um, they are totally different techniques because a movie, yeah. a TV show, you're showing exactly what to see. Whereas writing, you're collaborating with your reader that let's work together to come up with this picture. And that's something you find. Um, I found in general, if your character like mine is not like, you know, just regular white, nor like, you know, that what people expect, just a plain looking white guy, you have to hammer it home repeatedly that, you know, their skin is not white because people are just going to assume and then be taken aback. Like, wait, I thought this guy was blonde. What are you doing? And that's, um, I think that's probably changing more with younger people is um, we get to see more diversity in other media. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're thinking of the people who growing up, that's, you know, all your heroes were pretty much your standard white person. So yeah, I'm um, I'm mixed race, but I'm pretty pale, and I've never really seen myself represented in anything anywhere. Because, like for example, if someone is mixed race, they normally hone in on one aspect of their ethnicity, where it's like, oh, well, they're half Japanese, for example, and they'll really focus in on the fact they're half Japanese, and they'll ignore whatever the other half of them is. So it's hard because I'm half Indian and I'm also not super connected to the Indian culture because I grew up here in the United States. So whenever they focus in on someone who's half Indian, they point out how Indian they are. And I'm like, I'm not like you. (laughs) So I don't, I don't get it. So whenever I've read books for, I guess I just naturally populate people weirdly diversely because I'm surround, I I am like that, but I can see, well, yeah, but that's also just my experience. Maybe if I were some authors get upset. It's like, well, I didn't describe how they are. So it's the reader's fault for not imagining them as being diverse. So some writers would be like, would be excited that that's what you do. But my, my experience, which again, my, the people who have critiqued me usually are white people. So that's how they're viewing things. And that's, Mm -hmm. um, and that makes some set like white male in America is still considered kind of the basic standard. So a white man is going to kind of picture everyone as a white male, as a white woman, I tend to picture people as women. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things I loved about black Panther, I'm like, you know, I love the diversity. I thought it was fascinating to watch a movie when I see the one token white guy, I'm like, that's how black people must feel when they watch any movie. Cause there's this one person that looks like yeah. me, but, but as a woman, I really, the fact that there were so many strong female characters resonated with me because most action movies, you have your token female. And this mm-hmm. was, no, there's a bunch of different women that, you know, are very capable and smart. And there yeah. is one TV show that I really, really like that I think does an amazing job and it's for children. It's Mm -hmm. Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? I'm familiar. I didn't didn't have cable when it was first out and I just never got around to it. It's streaming online and I, it's a really wonderful show. And one of the things that it does is present a broad variety of strong, intelligent female characters. You have everyone from Katara who is a little bit more kind and motherly, but she is also an absolutely kick-ass fighter. Like she is a master of her craft. She's strong. And then you go all the way to the other side of the spectrum where you have the Fire Nation's Azula, who is power hungry, but also again, very powerful, very strong, very capable. These two diametric opposite people. You have another character who's another absolutely astounding fighter who is bubbly and perky and quote-unquote traditionally pretty and very but she'll render you absolutely incapacitated and then she has a friend who's a moody goth who will do the same thing (laughs) it's just this very vast span of different strong women and i thought that was really really great because for a long time when there was a woman in an action film or anything who was a strong woman she'd be Built like Lara Croft, kind of looked like she's wearing right. an invisible corset, big push-up bra, <laughs> for some reason usually heels in a cave. I don't get it. And, you know, that was your action heroine. That was your example. But then it's really great, like you said, to see different women, you know, different ethnicities, wielding superpowers, brandishing swords, and just taking, taking names. It's great to see that coming about now. It is. Yeah, and I like I like how you said um, they have different personalities because so many of them, 
you see, basically, it seems like in the a lot of the young adults, all the girls have to be Katniss, basically. You can't really <laughs> have a sensitive. Um, yeah. And it's it's trick because there's all sorts of, like, if a girl does not want to go shooting and killing people, that's wonderful. Like, I I don't like when you have the idea that all the women have to be soft and cuddly and mm-hmm. kind to everyone. But a lot of women do have that tendency that they want to. And I like when that's represented too. And there's, there's a lot of different ways to be strong. And I, I like when it's not always just the sword fighting or kicking butt or whatever, where they're strong in different ways. There's another cartoon that I really like that. It was a Netflix show called She-Ra and the princesses of power. And again, it had another pretty diverse, um, you know, animated cast of women, but one of the characters is shown as being exceptionally, you know, pacifistic. Her her powers are to control plants, and she is very mm-hmm. vocal the entire time about, you know, not wanting to use her powers to absolutely blast people. That's just not what she wants to do. And at one point, someone tries to not argue with her, but be like, Perfuma, you could be one of the strongest princes if you just unleashed it. And she just glares at her and goes, <laughs> I am strong. I love it. And that's, I don't remember exactly what she said after her, but she was just like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I am strong, but I am a different strong. She wears a dress and has long hair. And again, she's a little, another one of those ah, ha, 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 and very mm-hmm. like flowers. But she's like, I have strength. Just because I'm not able to bench press 700 pounds does not mean I am not strong. I love that. That's great. It is. I, that's another great show. Very fun and wholesome. But, sorry, I got way off the topic. But <laughs> when... When did you, quote unquote, know that your book was like done, that it was that you wanted to move forward with like publishing it? Um, I think after it had gone through my critique group and they Mm -hmm. said it was, you know, pretty good. And then I still had edited a couple more times and then sent it to an well, I sent it to I think I edited a couple times, sent it to a couple beta readers. They said it was good. Um, edited it again once or twice more, um, send it to my editor. She said it was good. Um, probably sometime mid last year, I was thinking I wanted to get it done for Titanic's anniversary this year, which by the way, if you're um, publishing a book, I thought that would be a great idea because, oh yeah, everyone's thinking about Titanic. It is not a great idea for sales because um, everyone's putting their Titanic stuff out or if they, you know, Titanic's uh, kind of evergreen too. Right. Like, people are still interested in it in May, in June, whenever. So um, having it out for that exact date was not necessarily um, a smart business decision, but it gave me a deadline. Because if I don't have a deadline, I'm never going to get it done. I could still be editing this five years from now, and that would be fine, but I I wouldn't mind doing that. So um, for me, it was good. And the other reason, like you said, it has so many weird ideas and I'm a bit paranoid, so I'm like, I would be so brokenhearted if someone else wrote a story about people time traveling through a theme park to various places. Obviously, that is not likely to happen, but I was just scared that that might happen if I keep sitting on this. So I wanted to get this book out. So, and I'm, if someone else does it, they might be met with great success, but you can at least see the publishing dates. Like, no, she, she did not steal this idea. This was an idea she came up with independently. So that was, um, so sometimes deadlines and paranoia can make you actually get work done. So that that's what I need, I guess. Maybe I need de- a deadline so that way my anxiety will kick in and be like, no, you actually have to finish this. Because right now it's just no one's asking for it. It's just something I'm working on. Who cares? Very yeah. easy. And that's why having like partners to critique your work can be very helpful, too, because then at least you have to get some kind of deadline going. Yeah, that's true. I keep I, I've asked a number of people over the years to kind of be that person and help me out, and somehow not a single person's managed to stick. Aww. So uh, I know it's a bummer. I've asked many people because I know that that would help having someone who's kind of there just to be like, "Hey, how's it going?" But you know, I know that everyone has their lives and everything, but it's kind of disappointing because I've probably asked over thirty-five people at this point. Oh my time. goodness! Yeah, no, I'm not joking. It's a lot. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Have you tried like critique websites or have you just been going on your own? Going on my own mostly because also like I work a full-time job and everything. So I can't necessarily guarantee I can always stick to a schedule. Like someone may reach out and be like, Hey, it's Thursday. And I'm just like, I had 40 million deadlines. I cannot help you today. And you know, some people may not want someone who's not always going to be consistent because I'll do my best. But you know, sometimes, sometimes things happen. I'm not a full-time writer. 
And, you know, everyone has life to take care of outside of outside of whatever their hobbies are. So I think that's my concern, though. I'm sure that if I found someone that got that, they'd be fine. I'm, I'm creating my own paranoia and being like, no, no, no one will want to work with you. It's like, you've never asked. You're making, you're making more excuses. <laughs> yeah, I started out years and years ago on Critique Circle. And I, I'll tell people I bought a year's membership on Critique Circle. And um, I hear my program's gotten better, but I majored in creative writing. And um, mm-hmm. I learned more about writing fiction in one year on critique circle than I did for my creative writing degree. Cause they like just, that. you know, the people tell me all these things that um, I had not considered before because, um, and again, different programs have changed, I'm sure. But when I went, they taught you to write literary short stories. And it was um, the last class I took for the fiction writing portion where they come in, they had some guy come in one day and said, you will never make a living writing literary short stories. And I'm like, why did you teach us to write these? So um, yeah, which um, in fairness in this book, I think it does skew a little more literary strong, but maybe I think they call it upmarket fiction or something. So it it skews a little more fancy than... um, than I was into at the time when I, cause I'm sitting here writing fantasy in the create, wanting to write fantasy in the creative writing program. And mm-hmm. their idea of a good book is um, where somewhat, where basically nothing happens. And so I'm trying to write to their standards and it's not really what I want to do. So um, I've, I've learned a lot, but, and when I look back, I'm sure I learned some things in the program, but at the time, I don't think they taught some of the basics that I really needed. Um, and I've always been a writer, so I'm mm-hmm. not saying I was terrible, but there's yeah. a lot of stuff you don't, you know, like how to do descriptions and don't mm-hmm. use was so many times and that kind of thing. They didn't really go into in the program. So I was a musician classically trained for many, many years. Oh, wow. And I was, all, I was a little disappointed with my experience because when I was little and I wanted to learn an instrument in my brain, I was picturing learning how to like make my own songs and write my own stuff and uh, be, be be far more creative. And instead there was, this was the program. You are going to study classical music. This is the repertoire and everyone went through it. Mm. Now though, there are more, you know, there's a, there's this franchise called school of rock where you can literally take music lessons in rock style and there's jazz and you can take um, like Spanish guitar, there's so many more opportunities now for people to learn more specialized skills. And I think that maybe you're right in that programs are changing and explaining a bit more about how to write effective, you know, fantasy elements into a story or incorporate sci-fi or write descriptions properly. And I hope they are changing to expand more because you'll get more people in that way if they're able to actually express the way the, themselves the way they want to write the things that they want and experiment and explore the genres that they're actually interested in. For sure. I know, like, I don't hate classic literature, but there's a lot of <laughs> books, sorry, there's a lot of classic literature books that I read and I'm like, why is this good? Is it just good because it's old? And so, and everyone is afraid to raise their hand and say, we've been reading this book for 150 <laughs> years. We haven't liked it for 149 <laughs> of those years. Maybe we should stop. And <laughs> I'm not saying all of them are terrible, but it's sort of like we've been reading and going off of the same standards for reading and writing for X many years now. And I think it's time to broaden the circle. And if you want to sell, you have to, you can't write like they wrote 150 years ago. That's um, basically not going to sell copies um, because conventions change. Like adverbs used to be in, it used to, they used to, use all sorts of dialogue tags and now they say no only you said that's so the conventions of what's expected just Mm -hmm. changes through the years and um again maybe programs are teaching modern conventions now but um yeah it's yeah i don't know um i did have a friend who went through the same program just a couple years after me and it sounds like she had a good time but the other thing they had they had like live which i guess is pretty common for critique critique groups but I can't do it where you give out a copy of yours they read it and then like you get in a circle and they talk about your work and I'm like nope no that's that I get terrible anxiety so now I do it where it's just a google doc and people write their feedback in and that's really what works for me um so and she thought it was really good to learn to get that feedback and on the one hand she's right but if you really have social anxiety and cannot do it I don't know 
grow, growing is good. It would have been good to get past it, but I don't think it's necessary to be a successful writer to be able to take in-person feedback from people giving you critiques. That's it. So that's how all of my undergrad classes and creative writing were done. And for the most part, it was kind of, you know, fine. It was whatever. But it also did lead to two of the most awkward moments I've ever encountered in college. One of which I am not going to tell on the podcast because it's a little inappropriate. But the other one <laughs> of which is was just so profoundly awkward. So it's an undergraduate class. There's about 10 of us. And it's the same sort of thing. You, you, everyone gets a copy of your story. You come, whoever story we're critiquing that that day, then you all come back with your feedback. So that means everyone, including the professor, gets a copy of your story. One of the other people in my class decided to write a series of semi-fictional, like first-person stories about how she has a crush on our teacher. <laughs> <laughs> like one of the stories was opened with her room with like a conversation with her in a room, being like. Yeah, I just just think he's so attractive, you know? So we have to read and systematically critique this entire story in our class. And normally the teacher will say things. I don't think I've ever seen a man focus on a tile on the floor more studiously than this man ever did. He's just like, I'm not going to look up. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not even going to blink or inhale. It was so weird. That's so well. I will say in one of mine, um, because again, the social anxiety about about getting critiqued. So there's one. I don't think I did it consciously per se, but there was. I did one, and people. There was one person who called out what was bad on it, but pretty much everyone else was like, "Oh yeah, this is you know a good, you know they very very gentle criticism." And I realized much later, I had written it about another character I had in actually kind of a comic book fantasy thing, but mm -hmm. um, she was a victim of abuse. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought, I think they thought it was coming from a personal place, which it wasn't. So they didn't, mm -hmm. like I said, one person either had no sensitivity or figured out that, no, she's making this up. But everyone else, I think, was very gentle because they're like, oh, we don't want to go into this. So that was, um, again, I don't think I did it on purpose per se, mm -hmm. but it, it really, it kept, they pulled their punches because they, thought it was something different but yeah. yeah live feedback can be hard because you you, you do kind of want to not absolutely rip a human to shreds even <laughs> if you think it's terrible I don't think there's anyone who would get up in front of a class like open a scroll and be like <laughs> Sarah I feel worse than I ever have in my entire life after reading what you have handed in to this critique I cannot <laughs> believe you think that you're a writer your characters are like that's not how people would do things like I think genuinely if people were like all right Sarah's the worst writer I've ever encountered they'd probably mm -hmm. be like baby steps to improvement and we had that happen in our class once with someone who was struggling a little bit to get a foothold and it was just because they weren't as naturally talented mm -hmm. at writing as some other people were and the hard part is trying to to deliver that critique gently and unfortunately this classmate did not take it well and asked to immediately be transferred out of our critique group oh well, i have to say my partner and i were very kind but it, it's hard to accept criticism for things that you have lovingly created like my characters i have created in my heart and if someone was like that doesn't seem realistic i'd be like well maybe you're just close-minded but <laughs> it, it's hard it's hard to share the things that you make with the world it is it, it makes you vulnerable it does well and it's i find if it's something i mean i have social anxiety anyway but if it's something that Same. doesn't matter it's a lot easier Whereas if it's something, you know, like this is something that's actually very important, then it's, mm -hmm. you know, very hard to, and I've, I have gotten better if I had to go in a live critique group and now I'd probably do a little better. And I've gotten, um, I, I think quite good at trying to like, the more you read, the more you realize there's different ways of doing things. Right. Like you read this published thing and it's like, I think it's terrible, but it's sold a million copies. So I guess. What's up catcher in the rye? not that terrible. So, um, so I try now to couch it more in terms of I would do this, or mm -hmm. I think this because, yeah. um, their opinion is, um, there's some things that are grammatical and whatever, but in general, yeah. there's, there's a lot more leeway than I 
thought at first, like just because I don't like it or don't think mm -hmm. it works doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. You're right. And it's funny, I was, so we follow each other on Twitter. So I see um, your replies to my tweets and you responded to a tweet, a tweet from someone that asked, what do you write in first, second or third person? And our answers were diametrically opposed. <laughs> It's just because I personally prefer to write in the third person. I am much better at communicating in third person. And for me personally, I justify in my, because when I start to write in the first person, I too easily slip into myself. Right. And that's a me thing. And it's just an example of, okay, it may not work for me because I have trouble reading books written in the second person. I don't know why. There's just something about the second person that my brain is like, e and just that's normal. That's it's <laughs> they, uh, if you read the experts, they all say, don't if you're going to do second person, make sure, you know, you could do it maybe for a short story. Any more than that's going to be hard on readers. So it's I read it's a just, whole yeah. young adult novel and it was I don't even remember most of what happened in it just because you spend so much time, quote unquote, translating the sentence structure in your brain. And Again, these are these are preferences, but it's just like, well, if I had written this exact same story, it would literally read completely different. And it just goes to show you that you hand if you hand you and me the same assignment and say, give me five pages on this, they're both going to even if we somehow came up with the same plot. They would read completely differently. They would. Um, and I would, my suggestion on third person, there's some people who should not write first, or you should write first person in one book, because I've read right. a couple different, very famous ones where the author wrote um, that they're really good. So their point of view of the first person character, this is so engaging, I love it. And then you see him write another character. Mm -hmm. And that character sounds like the same voice as the first character. So yeah. I think anyone can write a really good first person point of view with one character, mm -hmm. but being able to do different characters, some people can, some people can't. So if you can't, third person is probably the best. And it's, it's just different skills. It's not yeah. that one's better or worse, but. Yeah. Um, and you're right, but it's yeah. different skills. I, I'm a really descriptive writer. So third person happens to work really well for me. I find that if you're a really descriptive writer and you write in the third person, it's third, first person. It starts to sound kind of silly. Like I am. <laughs> I used to read this series of young adult novels called The Daughters of the Moon. And they would always get to this point where it would be these really elaborate descriptions of the outfits these girls were wearing to go fight. <laughs> it would be like, she was wearing a baby blue satiny dress that perfectly matched the glittery eyeshadow she picked up at Claire's that day to wear. <laughs> it was this really, really long thing. And it's just like, this is so awkward. <laughs> and that was in third person. But it's just kind of like everyone has different skills. And for some people that third person is going to be their saving grace. And for other people, you're going to read a description like that and be like, I think I'm about to never look at anything baby blue again. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. personal biases too. It is. But I don't know. I'm still just impressed by anyone who's able to write a book that it, it completed works of art are absolutely fascinating to me. Thank you. Um, did you ever try national novel writing month? Many times, <laughs> and I usually kind of peter out after a week or two, just because everything else up, catches up with me. But right, it, yeah, it can be. What month is it? Yeah. Uh huh. What month is it? Nine or oh, November. November. I might try again this this time because um, after connecting with Ryan Moss, who I talked to on my podcast right. a while ago, who's another author, um, I'm working with him to help him edit his book. I might ask him for to like trade his time with me just to be like. Make me write things, Ryan. <laughs> I know you have a wife and a child, but I need you to be responsible for a stranger. <laughs> you, well, together. Twitter can probably help you with, you know, just oh, that's true. put out on Twitter. Make me write. I'm like, you yeah. need to write. Get off Twitter. Oh, I should, because I will say, like, I'm normally a super open person. I will share my horrible drawings. I will share, I don't know, I follow roller derby all the time. I'll show you my bruises. I'll show you all my imperfections. I don't like to share my writing, even with my friends, because I guess in my mind, it's not good enough. It's just not there yet. And that, that's sort of silly in a sense, because as you've said a few times, if you don't put anything out and if you don't put anything down, what the heck do you think's going to happen? Have you ever tried writing like flash fiction or very short stories? I write what I call tiny stories where they're about a paragraph or two, um, I don't know if I have any on my phone that I can like access easily. If I do, I'll 
see if I can find it somewhere. Uh, yeah, they're really, really short. Um, <clears throat> like, why, cried the clipping from its aquatic prism of glass. Why did you cut me? Take me from my family. Why did you separate me, sequester me, or I can see all but touch not? I've been sliced from my roots. The gardener came to the surface where the little jar sat and lowered down until they met the gaze of the weeping plant. Little one, it is hard to understand, and I understand why you are hurt and confused. I clipped you and have set you in water away from your home and the ones you love, but it is for a reason. You will swim and drift and soon begin to sprout. And once you do, I will bring you to a new place where you will grow roots of your own. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, but yeah, you can do it. Yeah. I write teeny little things like that sometimes when I don't quite have the inspiration to work on like a big epic fantasy novel. Um, but, and I'll share those sometimes, but sharing, sharing writing is hard. And they, it's not to say that art is, is not um, personal because I think art's super personal, but when you read something someone's written, especially a novel, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages, you get a pretty good sense of how that person views the world. And that's yeah, a really, that's really, it's a really intimate thing to know about somebody. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, but, well, yeah, but you can do just the flash the, or the, you know, tiny stories like that. Like mm -hmm. any kind of writing is good writing in my, like, just get it out, whatever it is, if you don't have the energy to do it. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think I saw a post on like Tumblr or something that was like, you can't edit a blank page. Like, no, it's true. You, you can only edit what's there and that's important. But again, it's just, you wrote a book. That's bananas a book that combined a theme park time travel and the titanic it's that's fantastic to me it's just I, I love how creative people are because it just reminds me that again like in the same way that i love those little acts of kindness i just love what people come up with i never would have bloody thought of that it never would have occurred to me to combine those two things simply because my brain doesn't work like that but you did and then you wrote a book about it that's pretty <laughs> thank intense you. thank you anyway i've I've kept you for a while and talked in your ear for a while too, but um, did you have any questions before I let you get back to your life? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Um, cool. You don't have to have your, any. Well, you probably already said it in another one. What's your favorite Titanic book? My favorite Titanic book? Or, you, I, or one you really like. I really like, I think I brought this up in every episode of my podcast. I really like Down with the Old Canoe by Stephen Beale. And I really like this one because it's less about the Titanic in, itself and it's completely about the cultural history surrounding the disaster. It talks about things like how the women's suffrage movement was affected by it, how race played into it, how the class barriers were a part of it, how the tragedy was perceived by different groups. It's absolutely fascinating because it brought up a lot of points I never would have even considered looking at just because I'm a sociologist, I'm not a historian, and I'm kind of not an observant person. So <laughs> and when you read this book, and you're like, oh my goodness, never would have thought of it that way. But that is pretty incredible. So I, I recommend that to anyone who's interested in Titanic. And even if people only have like a tangential history in, of interest in it, again, it's not really about the ship. It's kind of about what it meant and how everyone interpreted it. And that's super interesting. Cool. How about you? Yeah, Before we can I do it you for sure. Yeah. Hmm? Before I let you go, what about your favorite Titanic book? You're not allowed to say the one you wrote. But, but no. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I mean... I, I cited in the back of my book the ones I like the best, um, mm -hmm. but um, the, I really love the personal accounts. I was going to say, you had mentioned Violet Jessup, and I was mm -hmm. going to mention her book, because that one, um, it's, I mean, it's, there's fiction in it, probably, because she wrote it as fiction of her life, but they mm -hmm. publish it as her life. Um, it's probably kind of in the vein of the Little House books, if I had to guess, except she changed the names on her own um okay. but um that one that one i find maybe one of the most interesting ones um lawrence beasley's account is actually really good and that's free online you can just find it anywhere and um, read oh, it for free because it was from about 1912 he was the second class teacher who was one of the few men who was ordered into a lifeboat and he said well okay so <laughs> he survived um because um of all the passenger groups the second class men fared the worst by yeah. far so yeah, they did. But any of the first person accounts are really, um, and even reading the newspaper articles, although I believe there's a lot of fabrications in a lot of those articles, you'll have sometimes yeah. the people who they supposedly interviewed come back later and say, I did not say any of those things. Right. You just 
made this up. So yeah. um, anything historical, I think is really, um, and it's, um, it's, I think it's important to read at least one or two books on the sinking. So you understand the ideas, but once you have the basics, I think it's really interesting to see what, what different people who were there actually had to say about it. Yeah, as we pointed out, there's so many different ways to view things and two people watching the same thing can see slightly different stuff, even just based on the angles. It's, it's all perception and context. It is. <laughs> well, Julie, thank you so much for coming on and letting me talk at you and to you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You guys, I want to thank Julie again so much for coming on my show. She's so sweet. I am so excited. I actually have the time to read her book, which I kind of have. Not all the time, but you know, like I actually have a little bit of time maybe where I can take care of it. But uh, in the meantime, you guys should read her book. Get in touch with her, please. She is so, so sweet. You can find her book, Titanic Voyage, on books to read with the number two, books number two, read.com slash Titanic Voyage. You can also go to her website, which is Julie Bin, G-A-U-L-I-E. Her last name is B-I-H-N. So Julie Bin, all one word, dot com. You can also get in touch with her on Twitter. She's super fun. That's uh, at Julie Bin, all one word. And on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash Julie Bin. Just the same, which makes it super easy and very convenient. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can also do that. Uh, that would be Titanic Talkline on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can send me an email at titanictalkline at gmail.com, and I will write you back. I'm one of those people, and I will see you next time. Bye! Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!